Welcome to the Multifamily Mavericks Podcast, hosted by Josiah Smelser and Megan Greathouse. This is your one-stop shop for building and growing your multifamily business. Join us on a weekly basis as we crack the code to multifamily investing and scale up to financial freedom. And now your hosts, Josiah and Megan. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Mavericks Podcast. Today, we're bringing the heat. I've got Brian Burke, the president and CEO of Praxis Capital. Many of you are familiar with Brian as he is an icon in the multifamily space and commercial real estate space. He's also the author of The Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications. And Brian's company, Praxis, has a current portfolio of $200 million in real estate assets under management. So Brian is not playing around, but we're going to dive into mindset uh, towards starting and scaling your business, as well as real estate syndications and things of that nature. I know you're really going to enjoy this one. Uh, without further ado, let's dive in. Before we get started, let's take this opportunity to get connected. You can find me on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor. You can find Megan on Instagram at Part Time Empire and our show on Instagram at Multifamily Mavericks. We're also both on LinkedIn. And if you're a multifamily investor, a multifamily syndicator, a mom and pop owner, want to partner with us on a deal, or even have a deal you want to sell, get in touch with us. We want to hear from you. Shoot us a message through Instagram or LinkedIn, and let's get to know each other. I'm excited to have Brian Burke on the podcast today. Brian, I've been really looking forward to this. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I I was fortunate enough to hear you on Michael Blanc's podcast, which I follow. And uh, I am currently scaling from single family, one to four family investing into multifamily myself. And uh, I've got the Daily Real Estate Investor podcast and have recently started the Multifamily Mavericks podcast with Megan Greathouse. Megan and I are both transitioning into multifamily investing right now. And uh, I'm really interested in this because I view this as one of the quickest paths to financial freedom of, of anything you can do. Now, you've been extremely successful in this uh, area, and I know you've been at this for over 30 years. You've got $200 million or more in assets under management, around 3,000 doors. So you are way ahead of where I am. But I was excited to hear your story and, uh, and to learn from you and and how do you, how you went about building this whole thing? Well, it's interesting you say it's the quickest path to financial freedom because I think it took me about twenty years to be financially <laughs> free in this business. So if if that to you is considered quick, then you're in the right business. Uh, if if you're looking for it to happen in a year, then uh, man, I hope you don't get disappointed. Maybe you'll do a lot better than I did. No, I I think that I think twenty years is better than most people. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, how, a lot of people, it never happens, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. So what turned you on to this? Um, what Did you start off in, as a real estate investor out of college or how did you get into this? Well, I actually kind of started off as a real estate investor out of high school. I mean, I, uh, uh, I, I had uh, this idea that if I could sell these uh, books through drop shipping through the mail order, I could, I could make, uh, make money. And of course, you know, I was working at a grocery store and you do anything to try to make a buck. And one of the books that was on this dropship list was a book on investing in real estate. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to sell these books, I should read them. So I read these books. And of course, I read the real estate book. And it's like, you can buy real estate with, without any money. And I'm like, well, that's me. I have no money. And it's like, you can do it with no money down. I'm like, perfect, because I don't have any. And it's like, you don't even need to have any knowledge or nothing. And I'm like, I don't know anything. So this is perfect for me. So I thought, hey, real estate sounds great. I'll just go out and I'll go buy uh, some property with no money down. So I went out searching around and I found this property that was for sale. And I asked the seller if they'd carry back a down payment. And they said, yeah, we'll do that. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. So I literally just bought this house with no money down. And I thought, okay, this works great. It's just like the book says. It wasn't until, you know, a lot later that I figured out that that almost never happens. Uh, but, you know, when you're young and dumb and don't know any better, you just, you just do it. And that's what I did. I did it. And from that point on, I was, I was hooked. Sweet. So you started off with, uh, it, and it seems like that's the thing that a lot of, you know, you hear a lot, you don't need any money to do this. You don't have to know anything. You just do this one thing. And then all of a sudden you get a bunch of properties. And 
we all know it's not that easy, right? It's it takes a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of failing and learning to get there. And so, how did you move from your first deal into where you are today? How'd you build this whole thing? You got a massive real estate business going now. Well, one brick at a time, just the way you build a, you build anything, you know, first you start with a foundation and then once your foundation is solid, then you start going vertical. Right. And that's kind of how I've done this is, you know, building the foundation was first, it was a lot of um, trial and error, learning, observing, watching other people, uh, trying to figure out how in the hell I was going to be able to ever buy more real estate, uh, preparing, um, financing. And for me, my financing was every time I got a letter in the mail that said you're pre-approved for this credit card, I would fill it out and send it back. <laughs> and I literally had like a stack of credit cards, like so like an inch thick. And so I, you know, and of course, then you started asking for credit limit increases. And then when I had a few credit limit increases, I went down to the bank and I, with a stack of credit cards, and I said, cash advance all these to the limit. And the teller looks at me like I'm some kind of crazy weirdo. I'm like, just do it. And so they did it. And I walked out of the bank with a cashier's check. I used that cashier's check to buy my second uh, property. And then, uh, you know, from there it was just like, okay, now I did it a second time, pay off the credit cards. And then I got a, uh, a signature line of credit from a, from a bank. And then I would use that coupled with the credit cards. And then it was just, then I found a couple people that had some money and I said, Hey, will you invest with me? And, you know, I'll split the profits with you. And, and then, you know, so it just was one piece after another, after another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, it, it just takes time, trial, error and repetition. And then, you know, next thing you knew, I look back and now I've bought a half a billion dollars in real estate. <laughs> That's incredible. So from deal one to deal two, did you stick with single family on your second one? Oh, I stuck with a single family for a long time. Okay. I probably, I probably had at least uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty single family uh, deals that I had done before I did my first multifamily. And I had no idea what I was doing when I wanted to go into multifamily. I was, uh, I was fixing up, uh, doing house flipping. So I was buying houses, fix them up, resell them. That was what I was doing. And I had a real estate agent that I was listing the houses for sale with. And uh, he was a CCIM, which is a commercial uh, certified commercial investment uh, real estate broker. And I, uh, I asked him, I said, um, you know, gosh, I was kind of thinking of maybe doing like an apartment or something like that, you know, but I don't know anything about it. He's like, come into my office. I'll teach you everything you need to know. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I went into his office, sat down and he like, he showed me how to read an income statement and like what the things to look for and all this stuff. I mean, it was probably only like an hour or two we spent together on it. Uh, but then a few months later, he had a listing uh, of an apartment building. It wasn't on the market yet. And he's like, you know, hey, would you be interested in buying it? And I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And uh, I was doing a 1031 exchange. I was selling a couple single families and uh, uh, I didn't have enough money for the down payment. So back to my day one playbook on my very first house. Uh, so in my first apartment building, I asked the seller if he'd carry back part of the down payment. I said, I could come up with half of it, but not the whole thing. And they was like, okay, yeah, he, we worked through the agent, talked him into it. I don't know who, whether he did or I did, but the guy did it. And, uh, I got, uh, 80% from the bank, 10% from my 1031 and 10% from the seller. And it was a 16 unit apartment building. And now I was in the multifamily business. That was 20 years ago. Sweet. So your first multi-deal was 16 units before that. And, and how many years into your investing track were you at this point before you bought your first multi? Was it 10 years? Did you say? Yeah, it was about a decade, a little okay. over a decade. Yeah. About 11 or 12 years. Yeah. And you said you had done 50 deals <clears throat> and you were doing a lot of flips. Did you have any single family rentals at that time? Yeah, I had a few, uh, most of it, I was flipping most everything, but a couple of years before I got that first multi deal, I started, uh, holding some properties. So I was, I was buying, you know, houses at the courthouse steps, uh, yep. foreclosure auctions and, and fixing them up and reselling them. And uh, for a while, I was kind of doing the, you know, buy one, flip one, buy one, keep one, <laughs> buy one, flip one, you know, kind of doing that kind of thing. Uh, really, it was probably like flip four, keep one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I managed to collect a couple and I don't know, I had three or four uh, rental properties and that I was I literally the market just started going up in value. Like all of a sudden the economy had gone nowhere for like 
Yeah, and then in the late 1990s or early mid early and mid 1990s, the market was totally level. Property didn't move at all. Values didn't move at all. But in the late 90s, values started going up. And so I noticed like, wow, you know, I've got a little bit of equity here. I could sell these and do a 1031 exchange, pay no tax. Another thing I read in a book, right? <laughs> and uh, and so I tried it. And that was that was literally my uh, my my key to the door for multifamily. Very nice. And you started with your first multi was a 16 unit deal. Where was that one located? It was in California, Northern California. Okay. Have most of your properties been in that area of the country or? They were, you know, when I first started, it's like, you know, like anybody else, you start in your own backyard, you know, when you've never invested in real estate, you know, start small, do whatever it is that you can afford to get into uh, and do it in your own backyard because uh, it's close by. And so that's, you know, where I started investing was literally right here in my own backyard. And then I would start to expand. It got really competitive where I live. And so I went into the next county over. It was less competitive. So I was buying stuff over there and then it got competitive there. So I went a few more counties over. And next thing you knew, I was, I was buying in like five or six counties. And uh, that was uh, an interesting experience to learn how to kind of grow outside and, you know, kind of bust through the fence, right. And, and grow to uh, more geographical areas. That was my first experience with that. So I bought that 16 unit. And then uh, a few years later, I, you know, I wanted to buy some more multifamily units, but the market in California was just starting to look really frothy. This was like, oh four oh five and i'm like you know something about this doesn't feel right this just looks really bad i think there's going to be a bunch of foreclosures you know i think real estate prices are too high so i kind of almost stopped buying completely in oh five oh six thank god because look mm -hmm. what happened yeah. prices fell dramatically from oh five to oh eight uh, but I started thinking, like, if I want to buy something else now, what am I going to do? So I, I thought I'm going to look out of state. And so then I started looking out of state into other markets. And I bought uh, my next multifamily was an 11 unit apartment complex. And it was all the way over in Buffalo, New York. Hmm. And I'm in California. So this is like all the way across the country. Now I'm buying this property. And so that was how I got kind of jumped into the business of buying uh, real estate across the country. Wow. So what part of California are you in? I didn't even ask you. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. And um, and have you located your company there as well, I'm assuming? Yeah, we're headquartered here. Uh, geez, we used to own uh, our assets here mostly. Now I, I don't own anything around here anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like I've sold everything off. Still have a few California properties that are outside of the county I live in, but still in California uh, but I don't buy anything else in California now. I'm I'm sure. kind of done with this state. Do you <laughs> are you feeling the same way about California right now that you felt in 04, 05? Uh, about it being overvalued? Mm -hmm. uh, no, not really. Not to the same extent as I was then. See, the difference was in in 04, uh, I, I was watching every transaction was somebody that was in service level job. Uh, buying a $600,000, $700,000 house with variable rate, adjustable rate uh, mortgages yep. with uh, negative amortization where their payment wasn't even covering the entire amount of the interest. It was stacking onto the loan. And they were doing all of this with no income verification, no job verification. Uh, you know, I used to call them the ninja loans, right? No income, no job, no yep. assets. Yeah. That was literally what it was like. I mean, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. Even they were giving me loans. So, you know, it's like anybody could do it. So uh, I, that's that was what scared me. And I, I realized that there was no fundamental basis for where pricing was headed. The difference now, though, it's what's changed is in, in some extent, wages are up. In another extent, uh, interest rates are way down from where they were. Yep. But what's more important is that people are buying with full doc qualification. Uh, they're putting up down payments. Uh, so there's a lot of cash transactions that are happening. So I have less fear of the market status today than I did in 0405. Now, having said that, if I were sitting on a bunch of houses in Palo Alto or San Francisco, uh, those kind of areas, I would be a little bit nervous given the uh, the trend we're seeing right now with uh, work from home 
allowing some of these uh, core market tech workers to expand their geographical constraints and move just about anywhere. So I think that some markets in California are going to take a pretty substantial hit uh, and others are actually going to be the benefactor of that hit. So it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag this time. Very interesting. Um, and while, while we're on this subject, before we start talking about this deal in Buffalo, um, how are you feeling long-term about what the Fed's done with their monetary policy and stuff? How's that? How do you see that affecting real estate long-term? Well, it's, it's tough to say. I mean, on one hand, uh, the low interest rates and the printing of money that they've been doing uh, really for the last probably eight or 10 years, uh, but really, especially in what's happened here in 2020, uh, ultimately, uh, that's likely to result in some inflation. Now, as a real estate owner, inflation is a good thing because real estate is really a hedge against inflation. As prices go up, real estate values go up, rents go up. Uh, that's a good thing for us. Uh, it's a bad thing for people that don't own real estate because it's going to make real estate more difficult to acquire. Uh, so there is that side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that eventually uh, interest rates are likely to increase. And when that does happen, that's going to be a headwind to real estate valuation to some degree. The question really comes down to how much inflation is there and does the push of the inflation overpower the pull of increased interest rates and allow valuation to continue to climb? Of course, we don't have the answer to that as we sit here today, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see that unfold. Very well said. So what, what's your... What's your guess over the next couple of years? Are you modeling out interest increases over the next couple of years? Do you have it relatively flat or what are you thinking on that? I think interest rates are going to increase only slightly over the next couple of years. I think uh, we're going to see very low interest rates, most likely for the next two to four years is my guess. Uh, you know, they may, they may rise some right now. I think the treasury's uh, what, around three quarters of a percent. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that get to maybe a percent and a half uh, in the next four to five years. But was it going to go back to the 2.7 or so that it was before COVID? Uh, it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. So uh, I'm, I'm just assuming rates are going to stay fairly level with a slight increase, uh, but not enough of an increase to have a major impact on valuation, just a slight headwind. Good deal. So, you know, you, you mentioned something that a number of our guests have also said, and you hear, sometimes you hear the advice, and I'd be curious what, what your thought on this is. If you're going to go into multifamily, the advantages are really at a hundred doors or more, right? Get the bigger deals, right? And then, so people coming out of one to four family going into multi, trying to get a hundred door deal or bigger, obviously there's a huge jump there, right? And you started with a 16 unit. A number of our other guests have done the exact same thing. So which one is it? Do you start with bigger and get the economies of scale advantages of the property management costs being lower, all these fixed costs being a lower percentage line item, or do you start small and just get a deal done? What are your thoughts? Well, this is a very easy question to answer. Larger properties have economies of scale. Uh, you can get better management. Uh, you can get better employees because you can afford the price of better people right? There's more income there to allow you to hire better people to watch over your investment. However, uh, if you are standing on the ground and your objective is to get on the roof, do you jump onto the roof or do you <laughs> climb a ladder? Now, some people want to jump on the roof. Uh, that's great. I, you know, I, I encourage you to try, but... <laughs> I also encourage you to have paramedics standing by because the chances are that you're just going to fall down and break your leg. Uh, unfortunately, in this business, it's frequently done with investors' money, uh, maybe not just the sponsor's money, but you know, passive investors. So the leg you break might not only be your own. Uh, you might break your investor's leg. And when you break your investor's leg, they send Guido out to break your legs. <laughs> and uh, Guido is named the SEC and the authorities who are going to come and give you a nice orange jumpsuit to wear. Uh, 
So I encourage people to use a ladder to get on the roof, uh, buy a fourplex, buy a 10 unit, buy a 25 unit, buy a 50 unit, then do your 100 unit, then do your 150, and then do your 250. And once you get kind of past that, uh, you've got it down pretty well. But you need, as they say, practice makes perfect. And then the other saying is something like, uh, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Uh, <laughs> do yourself a favor, mitigate your downside, mitigate the impact of your mistakes because you're going to make them uh, by starting smaller and screwing up in smaller dollar amounts, ones that have one comma, not two, uh, and then work your way up and use that knowledge to make your hundred unit deal a success. I love that's that. my best advice. Yeah, that's great advice. I love that. So you're in California, you've got the 16 unit, you've now found a deal in Buffalo because you're feeling like California is at a, at a point in the market cycle, you're not comfortable buying stuff there anymore. Back in this 0405, you get a deal in Buffalo. How did you attack that? It being out of state. By accident, actually, uh, again, another, uh, you know, stupid human tricks. Remember David Letterman used to have these stupid human <laughs> tricks on his show well, that was me. I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, well, uh, I was uh, trying to figure out how in the heck am I going to make money in real estate in 2005? Uh, because the market here was so high. A, the prices didn't make sense. B, there was no way I could afford it. So I said, uh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on eBay and I'm going to see if I can buy some real estate on auctions. So I look on eBay and I find all these fourplexes in Buffalo, New York, going to auction for like 30 grand. And, and the rents were like $400 a month. And I'm thinking, all right, 400 times four, that's 1600 a month. I'm paying 30,000. This is a, this is a winner. There's no way you can lose. I've got to do some of this. Now, I think many people would then just log in and make a bid, but I had been doing this long enough by this point to know better. So instead I logged on to the airline website and bought a plane ticket and went to Buffalo. And uh, I looked at some of these $30,000 fourplexes and immediately realized why they were $30,000 because it's the only building on the whole street that isn't boarded up. Yeah. And you, you, know, you just know that there's just no way these units are gonna stay uh, occupied. And even if they did, you're gonna be constantly patching bullet holes. And instead it was probably a better idea to look for something better. Ne needless to say, I had contacted a real estate agent out there to kind of help walk me through the market. And he tells me, he's like, well, you know, we looked at all this stuff and nothing made any sense to me. And then he goes, you know, I'm about to get a listing on this 11 unit building right downtown. He says, would you like to look at it? I said, I'm like, sure. So we looked at it and my wife was with me and she goes, when we left there, she's like, there's not one thing we're buying here, but that. And, uh, and that's, that's what we did. It was kind of purely by accident. Nice. So, and I, I think this is a really good point you're making here too. Uh, just because the numbers look great on something doesn't mean it's something you need to buy, right? You can get yourself into a situation where you've got this deal. It's exceeding the 5% rule, right? You're like, whoa, this is a cash cow. You drive over there. It looks terrifying, right? You're like, wow, if I don't get killed while I'm over here looking at this, uh, it's going to be hard to keep this thing occupied, right? Because there's going to be a lot of turnover, high crime, those, those things take a lot of your time to manage. Even if you're not managing them, they're challenging to even find a manager who wants to take it on, right? Because it's a problem for them to manage as well. And it works the same way in the, in the one to four family space, you know, um, as the, the rent ratio goes up, so do the management headaches typically, uh, as you go down the scale on the class of area that you're investing in. So, um, while we're on this topic, have you used this same strategy with the portfolio that you've built? Do you only invest in, you know, you know, C and better or what, what's your strategy there with quality of assets? Well, the quality of the assets is once again, back to this story about using the ladder instead of jumping on the roof. Uh, it's difficult to be competitive as a new investor in the class A space, especially when you're trying to 
you know, really scale your wealth because it's more of a steady as she goes kind of thing. It's like buying the Tesla stock when it's uh, just fell by half versus buying a 10 year treasury bond. You know, that's the difference between, you know, a class, you know, C property maybe and, uh, and class A real estate. So, you know, my strategy was to buy class C uh, type properties. I, at the time, I didn't even know what classes were. It's just like, yeah, it's nice. I'll buy that. Or it's not nice. I won't buy that. Uh, but over time, we've, you know, really refined that strategy because we've climbed the ladder. You know, we've served our time uh, doing the, you know, C and D type stuff where you've got to fight tooth and nail for every little, you know, inch of gain. Uh, and now we're kind of at that stage where we have enough investors, the returns that they uh, are satisfied with are such that we can, uh, we can afford to acquire nicer real estate and still produce the returns that we need and still attract investors. So, you know, now our strategy is really class A and B. Uh, you know, we might do some C plus that we could convert to a B if it's in a B market, but uh but at first, you know, you've got to suffer through some of those difficult challenges because, you know, people always say like, oh, I can't find a deal. It's so competitive, uh, you know, and so they compromise. Right. And you go, well, uh, this one's not as competitive. So I'll buy this because I can get it. Well, the reason it's not as competitive is nobody else wants it either. And you'll eventually learn that <laughs> and you'll learn it the hard way and you learn, you know, how to manage it and you learn what you don't want to do and you learn what you'll do want to do. And, you know, it just all comes with time and experience. So the 11 unit deal, you decided to buy this one on this trip to New York, you're heading out of state again. How did, how, how did you attack this thing? Did you have to do some renovation and, and did you hire a local property manager or how did you go about managing this property? Yeah, I, uh, I asked my agent that we were working with, we had recommendations for a property manager and, you know, he had a couple people. So I called those people and I asked them if they had any recommendations for an insurance guy and they had a couple people. And then I asked everybody that I had contact with if anybody knew contractors and they all knew a couple people and you talked to all the contractors and figure out who's the best contractor to work with. And so uh, I ended up with a local property manager and a local contractor. The contractor helped me renovate units as they turned over. The property manager oversees the property. Uh, you know, I think since then I've had at least one, if not two property management changes at that property. Uh, but it was uh, ultimately, uh, it was a lot of hard work in the beginning, but now it's kind of like, you know, totally on autopilot. So the team that you have in place now, do you have, do you have someone overseeing asset management for you and then you're just meeting with them on a you know on a you know weekly or monthly basis or how does that work how did you build your team well you know it went from uh personal investments which is you know like the 16 unit the 11 you know stuff like that where you're just kind of building your own personal portfolio and learning the business to actually making this a legitimate financial services company where we have thousands of investors and we have you know, thousands of units and, you know, hundreds of millions of assets under management, which is completely separate from anything I did personally. You know, now we have a, a whole organization here behind me, uh, which means that I have a C-suite level of executives. I have a chief operating officer. I have a chief financial officer. I have an investor relations uh, VP. <clears throat> We've got a, a chief investment officer. So we've got all these different roles to fill and, and these guys all have extensive multifamily experience. And part of building the business to scale the way we did is to vertically integrate and vertically integrate means essentially creating our own property management company uh, for the purposes of managing our own assets. And uh, my own management company doesn't manage my personal investments because they're way too small. It's not worth fooling with. We still use local managers for that stuff. But for our company investments, um, you know, we've got uh, our own management company. So we have complete control over the process from A to Z. It also means we have 50 employees and, you know, kind of all that stuff that goes with it, too. Uh, but, you know, this is no longer just a real estate investment. This is a full on business. Sure. So from the 11 unit, um, I guess, give us the path that, you know, you took to building your real estate business and, you know, having investors and having these, you know, C-suite level, um, level people involved in what you're doing. 
Yeah, a lot of steps over about a 10 year period uh, to answer this question, but kind of the, the elevator version is uh, I, I climbed the ladder, just like I described earlier, where, you know, my next purchase, I bought a, uh, a 50 unit and I bought more, you know, fourplexes and duplexes and, uh, and that sort of stuff. And then, uh, and then I got a, 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 what was it, 80 or 90 unit. Uh, and then we got a 136 unit and then, you know, a hundred and something and then a 200 and something. And then, a, uh, you know, the, it just goes on and on. And now the, the largest property in our portfolio now is 539 units. Uh, you know, the smallest is a single family rental home. So, <laughs> you know, I've still got the whole, uh, the whole gamut. So it's, uh, it's been a, a process of just, you know, grow your way into it organically. And, you know, the first time I syndicated out one of these large apartment deals, uh, it was basically literally, literally friends and family. It was a brother-in-law and a, you know, a couple other friends, uh, that contributed the money for it. And then the next one, you know, it was a few friends of friends and the next one, it was, uh, you know, just people that we'd started meeting organically through our house flipping business that was starting to get really big. And we were getting all these investors in our house flipping business. Uh, after the market collapsed here in 08, we like went full on in house flipping. We were doing like 120 houses a year house flipping. And so we had to raise a bunch of money to do that. And, you know, we were getting all this recognition. We were featured on the front page of the real estate section of the San Francisco Chronicle and, you know, and stuff like that. And that kind of media attention started pulling people into us like, hey, I read about what you're doing in the newspaper and, you know, I want to invest with you guys kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, we started you know, putting some of those investors like, hey, you know, we got this multifamily deal that we're doing over in Texas, you can invest in that too. And it just kind of grew. And then eventually you get to this point where, you know, it's growing organically to the point where you don't even know where people are coming from, you know, they're coming from everywhere. And, and literally now, you know, our phone just rings. I mean, you know, I've got, I told you I had a, a VP of investor relations, he's literally booked out days, if not weeks, and sometimes months in advance, all day long on uh, half hour phone calls with new investors coming in and that's all he does. And, and it's uh, and it all just happens. You know, we don't do any advertising or really any marketing. It just happens. And, and that's, that's how you, you know, you get from, you know, cash advancing credit cards to buy a house to having thousands of investors with capital to invest in, you know, $50 million real estate deals is it, it just takes time, but it, if you stay after it and put one foot in front of the other, you get there eventually. I love it. So I love what, I love the story because you're giving us what actually happened, what actually created the success that you're having now. And it didn't happen overnight, right? You spent a lot of time, a lot of hard work. At what point after you bought the 16 unit, did the 11 unit next, at what point did you start bringing on investors and doing syndication? Like what was the time period there? Yeah, so I had done, uh, I did one syndication uh, before I even did my um, my first multifamily deal. It was a syndication to buy my single families and it was a very small raise. <clears throat> I raised $500,000 from my ex coworkers when I quit my job uh, and, uh, and said, hey, I'm gonna be buying houses, the courthouse steps, foreclosure sales, uh, I raised 500 grand. I was able to take that and cashier's checks down to the courthouse and, and buy flips. And, you know, I was generating some pretty good returns. And then, you know, people, a couple other people were like, Hey, I heard about what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, we don't really have any more room, but uh, I was, yeah, but I was doing some uh, single family. Uh, I wanted to be a developer. I thought oh, it would be cool to be a developer. You know, that's a cool word. So, you know, we've got a contract on some land to subdivide into like 60 houses and, so people were investing in that. And so I just had like a bunch of different, like little kind of side, small stuff, you know, three, 400,000 at a time type of deals. And then, uh, uh, and that was really all I had done. You know, there was maybe four or five uh, of those that I did and before the major market crashed in 2005. And when that happened, uh, it was 2008. And uh, I was, I was, I still had my little foreclosure flip fund and we we're now like starting to get really busy. And, uh, and I ran into a guy down at the auction and he, I'm like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, we're looking to figure out how to buy these houses. And I'm like, oh yeah, I have this figured out. What do you do? And he's like, oh, we're a home building company and 
you know, we're, we can't build homes profitably because prices fell. So we're looking to buy foreclosures, but we can't figure this out. So I'm like, hmm, that's exactly the piece I'm missing is I don't have the crews to fix these houses up. Why don't we team up? And so we did that. We partnered and, you know, I, I never really wanted a partner, but it was the best decision I ever made because this guy brought something I didn't have, two somethings. One is he brought a, a, a whole crew that could fix up the houses. The second thing he brought is he knew everybody in town. So we could now go to guys that would never pick up the phone and talk to little old me and we could go to him and, you know, get a half a million dollars. And that was huge. And so, you know, that that's really kind of what launched us into like doing these small syndications on the single family flip side, which then subsequently grew uh, to doing these large syndications on the multifamily side. So it was, it really is kind of just one step at a time and kind of who you meet along the way is really what gets you there. Sure. Um, so do you have partners now? Are you doing, have you built most of this by yourself? I know you have the investors, right? Um, do you have other partners in the GP that you work on all this with or how, how have you gone about that? Well, you know, I always was the Lone Ranger. I want to do everything myself. And that's how I started this business and got all the way up until about 2008, uh, you know, doing it by myself with maybe a partner here or there that never really worked out. Uh, when I partnered with this uh, home builder, that was a really worthwhile partnership. And I realized the value of having more people. But uh, we we were partners together on doing the, the first few multifamily syndications. And then uh, we were buying all this stuff down in Texas. And uh, and then eventually his job was, you know, he would go to Texas to oversee the, you know, make sure things were going well, then he'd come back. Then I noticed he's going for like a month at a time instead of a day or two at a time. Then he ended up moving down there. So he moved down to Texas and was kind of overseeing our whole Texas portfolio. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I was thinking like, I want to advance or uh, go to other states too. How do I get into other states right now? we got Texas, we're doing really good. We got a physical presence there because my partner's there, but I want to go to Georgia, Florida, Arizona. You know, I need people in all these places. How am I going to do that? And so I was trying to figure that out. And um, so that was a business I was really literally building hundred percent on my own. And then, uh, and then I just, I met three people who were in the business on the institutional side who had left uh, their institutional jobs and wanted to get more entrepreneurial. And they joined up here with at Praxis as our C-suite team. Uh, I still own 100% of the stock, uh, but they get a profit share in exchange, you know, in exchange for you know, what they're bringing to the company. So yeah, they're, they're kind of partners and yet I still have full control of the business. So it was really was the right way for me to do it where, you know, I, the investors were loyal to me. I needed to protect the investors and make sure that the buck stops right here at this desk. Uh, but yet I needed the skill of uh, people that I could never afford to just pay a salary. So uh, it was kind of a win-win for everyone. That makes sense. One of the things that, you know, and I, I did the same thing on my one to four family. I had other investors involved in that. And now that I've got the podcast going, I've got people coming to me that say they want to invest in deals I've got people that want to partner and it's always, it's always a delicate thing to try to handle on the people offering to partner because while you appreciate that, you can't partner with everyone. Right. And, and so I was curious about how you've handled that. I know the right strategic partners make sense, but I guarantee, I mean, you're, you've probably experienced this times a thousand, right? I mean, everybody wants to partner with you. Everybody knows you're getting a lot of deals done. You're saying the phones are ringing off the hook. Investors want to invest with you guys because you're, you're producing results. You know what I mean? So, um, so let's talk about how you manage, you know, all these investors you have, like this is, this is, uh, you said you have thousands of investors. Um, how do you, how in the world are you managing that? And how do you make all those investors happy? <laughs> well, we make them happy by performing. Uh, you know, that's that's really how we make them happy. Uh, you know, we do what we say we're going to do. We have excellent quarterly reporting. So we're very transparent and, um, you know, we communicate well with people. Uh, that's how we keep them happy. It's, it's all in performance and performance can mean a lot of things. Performance could mean uh, we're meeting or exceeding our projections. It doesn't have to mean that. We have properties that aren't meeting or exceeding projections. You get those once in a while. Everybody does. But the, the question is, 
you know, how do you how do you react to that? How do you manage your way through it? Uh, how do you communicate with investors? And are you putting in the effort to write the ship? And that's another kind of performance. And, uh, you know, when things are going right, people see the one side of performance, but they don't see the other side. So, you know, we have we have deals that don't go right. It gets people the opportunity to see how performance really is when the chips are down. And so that's how we keep people happy is, you know, we, we perform for them and, and we do what we say we're going to do. Now, uh, in the beginning, it was not that difficult to keep track of everyone. Uh, I, I built a really simple database. I had uh, built databases before for our foreclosure business. And uh, so I built a nice investor database so I could keep track of everybody. But eventually we outgrew that. And now we have an enterprise grade system. Uh, it's called Juniper Square. It's an investor management platform that helps us keep track of, uh, of all of our investors and, and not lose anything. And, uh, and that's very, very important because this becomes a massive task as you, uh, as you grow and scale. So uh, you've, got, you've got software you're tracking with uh, or you're trying to keep your investors updated on what's going on. It goes without saying, you know, hitting your, hitting your projected numbers and exceeding those is going to keep people happy. What are some other tips you have for um, just managing your investors well? Well, you know, performing for the investors obviously keeps them happy. And that's the easy way to keep them happy. The hard way to keep them happy is when things aren't going according to plan. And, and uh, you know, to have happy investors in deals that aren't going according to plan is a real accomplishment. And, you know, we've been able to pull that off just because of communication. And so my, my biggest investor tips really are that you've got to communicate with people don't try to sweep things under the rug, deliver the good news and the bad news uh, and, uh, and just be real with people. And if you do that, uh, you'll get a lot of respect. And, you know, I get calls from a lot of investors that say, oh, geez, I had this uh, deal I invested in. It isn't going very well. And, uh, you know, I've emailed the sponsor five times and left him 10 messages and I'm not hearing anything back. And, you know, and that is just the absolute wrong thing to do. But it happens so often that people just go and hide under a rock uh, and abandon their investors and leave them holding an empty bag. And you can never, ever do that. I mean, you know, we've been fortunate enough that in 30 years of doing this, we've never had an investor lose a nickel of principal. And that's a very tough accomplishment. And sometimes it's only happened because I've written the check to make sure they don't. Uh, so I, I think if you're uh, looking to have investors in your deals, you've got to consider those investors to be your most valuable asset and treat them as such. Yeah, it, it basically goes back to, you know, treating people like you want to be treated. Right. And and it speaks to your integrity that you're writing the check uh, to make them whole on their investment. And that's why the phone's ringing off the hook. Right. People know that you're going to deliver and that you're dependable and trustworthy and you didn't get there overnight. You built this from your first single family deal. Now you're doing these 500 unit deals, which is, I love it. That's so awesome. Um, let's transition. I know I, I could talk to you about this for hours, but don't want to let this run too long. Um, you've got a book, the hands off investor. I've got it right here. Really love this book. Um, recommend everybody go out and pick up a copy. Tell, uh, tell us what went into to getting this book out there. it is of course people have always been telling me for years I should write a book and I've always just dismissed it like I've got I've got nothing for you you know it's like I don't want to be in the education business uh, but uh, uh, sometimes something just strikes you that uh, needs to be done and uh, I realized that a lot of the uh, questions that we get from investors you know new investors call all the time and they're asking questions about our investments and I realized that so often, even accredited investors ask the worst questions. Uh, and it's, it's like, why are you asking this? This is not important. This, this is not where you should be focusing your time and energy. Uh, so I realized that there was just no education out there to teach passive investors how to properly invest as a passive investor in a real estate syndication opportunity. 
uh, it just really hadn't been done before. And I, you could tell that people needed this education. They needed to be coached into what are the right questions to ask and what to look for. And it really struck home with me on a story with a friend of mine that I worked with way back in my grocery store days uh, that, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was bagging groceries. I was 16 years old and she was a grocery uh, checker and she uh, was getting, you know, closer to retirement, but not there yet. But she had a couple of fourplexes that she'd owned for years and years and they had gone up in value a lot. And anyway, I got into the real estate business, you know, years later and, uh, you know, and I was doing small syndications at the time and, um, you know, nothing that could have taken the kind of capital that she had from those fourplexes. And, and she said, uh, uh, she called me one time. She said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm selling my fourplexes and I'm going to invest the money in this uh, deal with this guy. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds good. You know, let me know how it comes out. Well, she did it. It was a a TIC investment uh, that looked pretty solid. uh, Some uh, senior housing opportunities uh, but what happened was it turned out the guy was a crook. Uh, he stole all the money and basically raided the accounts and fled. Uh, now he's in prison and she lost her entire life savings. And in seeing that happen to someone, I thought if there's something I could do to help prevent that from happening to just one person, the time will be well spent. And I felt that writing a book on how to properly Uh, invest in syndications and how to properly do your due diligence on an investment sponsor and their opportunities was well needed. And that's why I wrote that book. That's awesome. Yeah. I love, I love that you're looking out for the little guy and there are some, some people out there that will take advantage of people that don't know what they're doing. And um, yeah, go check the book out, the hands-off investor. Um, A lot of great information in there about investing in syndications and, um, I really believe investing in syndications is a wonderful way for people to, to outpace what the stock market can offer and, and give you some diversification as well if you want to have stocks and real estate. So a um, couple more questions for you. The first, uh, what kind of advice would you give to new multifamily investors that are struggling to gain traction? Gosh, it depends on what the struggle is. And there, there's so many struggles in this business. Boy, when you do this long enough, you learn about every one of them. Uh, you know, there's struggles of capital and there's struggles of deals. Those are the two primary struggle points where people say, geez, I can't find the investors. Uh, or I found a deal and I can't get anybody to invest in it. Uh, that's one point. The other point is, geez, I found investors, but I can't find a deal anywhere. And what this all comes down to is relationships and track record, really. Uh, so if you can't find investors, the, the thing is, you're probably looking in the wrong place. If you don't have an extensive track record, uh, then your only investors are going to be your friends and family and people who already trust you for other reasons besides your extensive track record because you don't have one. Uh, if your struggle is in finding deals, the problem is you don't have enough track record with the brokers that are selling property. And you know this is another reason why kind of climbing the ladder really makes a ton of sense. If you can call the broker and say, oh, yeah, you know, I own a fourplex and a 10 unit in that market, and I'm interested in that 50 unit you just listed, you're going to get a lot more attention from that broker. You're going to be taken a lot more seriously than if you go, yeah, I've never invested in real estate in my life, but I saw that 250 unit that you have uh, and I'm interested in it. Well, that same 250 unit is also getting a call from my team. And so think about how you stack up uh, against the phone call they get from you know a team like mine where they go, oh yeah, we own uh, 1700 units in that market. And, you know, we've uh, closed three deals with you before. And, oh, yeah, we've even closed with that seller before. Who's getting the deal? So, you know, you have to climb your way up that ladder. And if you're running into roadblocks, it means that the rung of the ladder you're attempting to step on right now is one rung higher than your fingers will reach. And you should instead just reach for a lower one, grab onto it, boost yourself up, and then grab for that one. Love it. What is your why, Brian? Um. I'm a one trick pony. I, I I don't know how to do anything else. This is, this is, this is what I do. And, uh, and, and I think uh, I, I know that I would make a terrible employee. I've been an employee uh, twice. I was in grocery and then I was in law enforcement and I just know that I'm, I'm not the best employee, but uh, if I'm in control of my own destiny, then I'm in the right spot. 
And so that limits me to the business world. And the only business I know is real estate. So that's why I do what I do. We share that in common. I always tell people I, I don't I don't make a great employee. And I actually find that to be a common thread with a lot of people that are real estate investors. Curious, why why don't why why do you not make a good employee? Uh, I just like to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and not, not be tied down to a schedule, you know, like you be here at nine, you leave at five. I mean, I'm a very regimented person that I'm going to do that myself, but I don't want somebody else writing that schedule for me. Uh, you know, and gosh, I just remember in grocery, it's like, it was all about items per minute and how many boxes you can throw and stack onto the shelf. And, you know, and all these other things that to me just weren't really the way I wanted to be measured. Yeah. And it's also interesting because it's not about getting your work done. It's about looking busy, right? Like, yeah, I remember this, the very same thing, get your work done early. All they're going to do is try to go find something else to keep you busy with. And it's, it's, uh, I don't know, the carrot's not the same as when you're running your own business. Um, so we ask all our guests this, and I already know the answer. I already know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Just keep things consistent here. If I were to cash you out of all your real estate investments, and you could take all that equity off the table, and then have an extra $10 million to boot, would you walk away from it? Probably not. Uh, uh, probably not. There, I don't know what else I would do. Uh, now, would I build back to what I'm doing now? No, probably not. I'd probably take the 10 million. I'd probably invest it maybe in some other people's deals and let them do all the work. Uh, but, uh, but I would, I would still be uh, involved somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, this is also a common answer. Uh, a lot of people are doing this cause they love it. You know, you mentioned one trick pony. I mean, I, I love real estate. I don't, I don't have any plans of getting out and staying out and never doing it again at any point. So, well, uh, Brian, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time and, and your story with us. Uh, tell our audience where they can connect with you and, and find out more about you. Oh, lots of ways. Uh, our company website is praxcap.com. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. If you're an accredited investor, you can go to investwithpraxis.com to check out our current uh, offering, which is a 506C offering. So I can actually publicly advertise that. Uh, normally we can't, but you can go to investwithpraxis.com, check that out. You can find me on biggerpockets.com. I'm there answering questions on the forums for people once in a while and, and articles. And of course the book, uh, which is biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book, uh, or on Instagram at investor Brian Burke. Awesome. Well, Brian, it's going to be uh, fun tracking along with you. I do appreciate you coming on the show. Hope we can have you back at some point in the future. And you know, let's stay in touch. You got it, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Multifamily Mavericks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and share it with your friends. It helps us grow, which helps us find great guests, which in turn helps you grow. And don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Multifamily Mavericks, at Daily Real Estate Investor, at Part-Time Empire. Join us next time to keep learning the multifamily game and scale up to financial freedom.